Morning. Greetings in the name of Christ. It's really good to be with you again this morning. And like everybody else, uh, Daniel and Brenda, it is so good to see you here. God bless you, and we've uh, been holding you in prayer, and, but it's just fantastic to have you all here. I don't know. Can we just stand up and just pray a prayer of praise um, that, that they're here this morning? Father, we come before you this morning, and we're here just thankful for your many gifts. And one of the gifts that we're especially thankful for this morning is that Daniel's standing here with us. Thank you. Thank you for your healing power and for your love and your care. And I just want to praise you, Lord, that you are the great healer. In the name of Jesus, amen. Just uh, unbelievable. And this Christmas time, isn't this great? Love Christmas ever since I was a boy. I used to sing, uh, I don't do it as much anymore, but I used to sing my children to sleep. Of course, they're old enough, they probably sing me to sleep now, but then um, do a better job at it. But I used to. Um, it was part of our tradition when my children were very small, our children were very small, that part of what would happen is uh, I'd sing a song um, at, their, at their bedside when they were going to sleep, and especially um, our oldest ones, um, I'd sing for them, and part of the deal was I had to sing a new song every night, and if I, if I repeated one, then that was, I would inform, so I'd have to search for another one. And... Um, so I remember singing these Christmas songs. We started at around Christmas time. I was singing these Christmas songs. And I just remember going through them and being formed. Now that you sang that one already. And then I have to start another one. And yeah, got that one. And it's amazing that there's so many Christmas songs. Something about the story of Christmas, of Jesus coming to earth, touches something deep in our heart. And there's something about that story that just stirs us and has stirred the creativity of people for, for hundreds, for thousands of years. And it's right, and it's good. Um, I'm, I'm of the opinion that we spend too little time singing about Easter, but I'm fully on board with the idea of singing at Christmas. And, uh, you know, as far as entering into the debate about when Jesus was born, I think probably the, the jury is in on that, and yet it's right and it's good that we find a time of the year to celebrate Jesus coming to earth because uh, God himself did it. It was an outpouring of, over, this, over the time of Jesus' birth, before and after, an outpouring as has rarely been, um, really has never been seen in, in, the, in Bible times of, of Jesus or of God manifesting himself uh, to people. You have angels you have uh, visions. You have conversations one-on-one -on -one with, with the people and heavenly beings. You have a dark night being shattered by bright light. You have stars in the sky. All these different things that are, that are sent by God. I um, once, talked to, uh, once preached a message that was entitled, Why Did the Angels Sing? 
and uh, a Christmas message. And after the, after the service, Will came to me and said, you know, the Bible never does say, or where did you find that the angels sang? And he was right. It, they, it doesn't say that they sang. It says that they um, said, glory to God in the highest. I choose to believe that they did sing, and Will did exceed that. Uh, he thought that probably there was some singing involved. But, um, you know, the imagery that we have of, of these angels, and maybe of their song, I've thought about it a lot since then. You know, a Western, a Western art has sort of a, what do you think about when you think of an angel? Um, we've got, in, in all the storybooks, there's, there's sort of, uh, you know, they're all clean-shaven, and they all have, um, they're sort of androgynous, right? I'm sorry, they, they're sort of, you, they're not, we don't ever hear of, of, a, of a female angel. Is that right? And yet, um, this, the pictures that we have of them, are, they're not like uh, super manly necessarily. But what if they were? Um, what, if, what if this, that group of, of angels that, that met the shepherds were this big group of bearded, of bearded men, you know, they would sort of fit right into, uh, into it doesn't remark on their, on their appearance other than that they were beings of light. But I don't know, maybe it was more like a men's choir full of bass than uh, anything else. I, I don't know. And yet uh, the angels were there and they were rejoicing. And God sent this multitude of heavenly hosts to announce the coming of Jesus Christ. And it's interesting, Dad uh, already touched on a few things that I was planning to speak on. And actually the title of the sermon that I have this morning is When the Fullness of Time Was Come. And uh, I've been privileged to, to ha have several Christmas messages, and I've, I've um, it, maybe it's because of the time of life that I was in in each place that something about the Christmas story came out to me. Um, I remember talking about how wise men sought him and still seek him. I remember about, uh, I remember talking about uh, when, when the, why the angels sang, sort of the, the plan of salvation. But I was thinking about, about it this time, and I knew I was to speak, and something else came to me that I'd like to talk about. And maybe um, to, to preface this, um, <clears throat> like if we can somehow place ourselves in first century Judea, Maybe somebody who knows Joseph and Mary. And if you can place yourself in that context, with what you know about history and what, what you know about their time, what do you think would have been your description of the world if you were to be asked? How, do you, how would you describe the world in which you lived? What would you say? Or under... Roman rule, we've been conquered. There are foreign soldiers in every town. Uh, we, we are beset with Greek culture. Uh, if we show too much national spirit, we have the threat of violence. Crucifixion was a common sight. People who would go against Roman rule would be threatened by violence, taxation, not even by your own country, not even for its own benefit, but for somebody far away. If you can imagine how it would feel for the average American 
if, uh, let's say, China had invaded our country and had overwhelmed our troops and killed many of our young men and was now ensconced in every village, in every town. Wherever you went, there'd be Chinese roadblocks. And wherever you went, um, there would be a reminder that you are a conquered people and that your history, your once proud history, is now but a footnote of history. It's gone. They tax you and then send the money away back to China. That's how it felt for these Hebrews. And those promises, those beautiful promises that they read in the scripture, in Isaiah, in Psalms, they seemed far away. And there was a desperate need for the power of God. There were godly people there, and yet there were also the other people, the petty petty religiosity, people who um, were, it just seemed like they, um, they had sort of in, come, they had evolved into a, a people of a petty, petty religion without power. They were downtrodden. They were desperate for God's power. There's a, there's a scripture here in Revelation 6 that, um, that talks about people who uh, dad was talking about the long wait. And there's a, in Revelation 6, it talks about people that not only waited long, but they waited in, um, after death. So Revelation 6, in, um, in verse 9, it says, When he'd opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And these are the slain ones. They cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? How long, how long, how long? And that's the way it felt for the Hebrews. What I'd like to do here today is sort of parallel the experience of the people around Jesus and our experience. I don't want to minimize the fact that this was, this event, this historical event, was uh, the precursor for, um, for Jesus' final sacrifice and for the salvation of mankind. But I think there are parallels that we see in our story and in this Christmas story. How long? But what they didn't know, what that imaginary man or woman that we were trying to interview in Galilee did not know for sure was that God was right there at that moment in history and he was already working. And what about us? How long? The need for God's power. Do we need God's power? Do we sense the need for God's power? There's some creative people here in this room and some of you have some ideas, especially the younger ones, right? How we're going to get out of the difficult things. Those things that uh, are part of our current problem set. We've got ideas for those things. And if I can just do this, or just do that, or just do the other thing, then I'll get out of it. But what we sort of learn as we grow older, um, and hopefully earlier rather than later, the most intelligent, no, the wisest, um, young people are the people who, who learn quickly that they are not in control, 
that God is the one who is ultimately in control. Um, and as, they give the, as we give ourselves to God, that he is the one who can, who can um, give us what we actually need. And yet, um, so many of us fight and struggle against that. But we need the power of God. Just as first century Judea needed the power of God. We need God's power, and we need it desperately. And you can bring that down as granular as you want, right down to the, my life. I need God's power. And then we take it out a little bit. We need God's power in our family. We need God's power in our extended family. We need God's power in our church. We need God's power in our community. We need God's power. We've tried in our own strength, in our own ways, in our, to the best of our ability, and we've failed. We need the power of God. We know this. And the quicker we know it, the quicker he can work. But believe this and know this. In this moment of our need, God is already here and he's already working. There's the need for God's power and then there's the time for God's power. Galatians 4 verse 4 which was already read, when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that, they, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And there's so much to unpack here, but I'm not only going to, to talk about this, the fullness of time. What are the times that, that Mary and Joseph lived in? They were fraught times. They were times of enemy occupation, times of corruption, of national decay, of powerlessness, of pettiness passing for righteousness. And the time was perfect for God's intervention. It was time for him to act. God is never in a hurry, and he's always on time. Can we believe that and trust that for our lives? God is never in a hurry, and he's always on time. I hear people who stress and worry and, and um, ask God, where are you? Why aren't you here yet? Why aren't you acting? And I think when that happens in our, in our wording, in our verbiage, in the way we think, is that we're not in step with this idea that God is always on time. God is the creator. And the beautiful thing about God is that he's not done creating. He didn't stop creating when he created the world. He's still creating. And as a creator, he isn't bound by convention. He's not an evolutionist. He's the master of everything. And uh, the creators that you know, people who are, who are uh, making things, they use tools, they use materials, they use the laws of nature that they have at their disposal to turn potential into reality. And time is one of these things that is, turn, that is used to turn potential into reality. Think of a sculpture. A sculptor taking a block of marble and beginning to chip away at it. Something that he's got in his mind gradually taking shape in, in reality. Bit by bit, little by little. Time. God isn't bound by time, but he uses it. He's the master of it. 
And Psalm 31 says, my times are in your hand. And when we can, when we can rest in that, when we give back to God the gift of our choice, and we say, Lord, my times are in your hand, then we can find peace and we can stop the struggle. I'm going to read the context of, of um, that, that verse in Psalms. Psalm 31, 13, for I have heard the slander of many. Fear was on every side. While they took counsel together against me, they devised to take away my life. I don't think that's, uh, uh, David here was, was talking about his, the problems that he had with Saul. Um, but I don't know what kinds of fears you have. There's all kinds of fears. Uh, but, but whatever kind of fear, it doesn't have to be relational fear. Uh, we can find the same, the same trust here. I trusted in thee, O Lord. I said, thou art my God. My times are in thy hand. Deliver me from the hand of mine enemies and from them that persecute me. Make thy face to shine upon thy servant. Save me for thy mercy's sake. When we learn to trust in God's timing, we'll learn peace. Until then, we will fight and struggle and panic and doubt. When will God act? When the time is right, that's when he'll act. And it'll be on time. So we've got the need for God's power. We've got the time of God's power. And now we have the way of God's power. And this is what is so strange. So humanity is obsessed obsessed with the idea of power. Maybe especially men. No, not not especially men. Maybe men and women think about power in different ways. For men, maybe it's machinery and muscles and weaponry, technology, but there's also beauty and charisma and knowledge and control, influence, and people reach for the tools that are closest to them and they try to turn those, those, that power into something that will benefit them. And we're obsessed with it as, as a human race. Politicians wrangle for it. Nations battle each other for it. People cling to what little they have of it and claw at each other to wrest more of it for themselves, for their tribe, for their side. Power and control, influence. And why? Power is about, you know, it it sort of lives for its own self, but it's also about the future. He who controls the future really has control. And so what does God do in this moment when he's desperately needed and when the time is right? The fullness of time has come. God sends the angels with announcements. And he sends a star in the sky. And he sends visions. And he strikes people dumb. Unprecedented manifestations. Heavenly light in the dark. Angelic choirs. To announce... A baby. Think of our world. Think of the of the war in Ukraine. Think of the war in Gaza. Think of 
the propagation of hate in the Middle East and here. Think of the struggle that the United States has with racism. And people cry out, and we're praying that God would work. We say the time is right. How long can you wait? Very similar to what was, what was back at the time of Jesus' birth. But what does God send to rescue people? He sends a baby. 1 Corinthians 1, I've been, we've been really enjoying our study there, but um, I think it was two Sundays ago, we, we had this set of verses, 1 Corinthians 1, 27. God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty and base things of the world and things which are despised God hath chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are. God sends a baby. What is a baby? What does a baby represent? One of the things that babies represent to me is the hope and the confidence, the faith in a couple's life that the world will go on. A baby represents potential. You know, one thing that's true of all parents is that we've, we've begun, you know, for many of us, uh, parenthood starts at a fairly early age. Um, not too many 50-year-old uh, mothers. Let's, uh, and you know, that's, that's been true of all time until you know, you've got exceptions like Elizabeth and Sarah. But for many, uh, uh, for many people, parenthood is something that's experienced in, at a relatively young age. But even at that young age, we've already begun to realize that maybe we aren't going to be the perfect people we thought we might be. And what, what we see in our children is a hope that maybe they'll be better than us. There's the potential that, they'll, that they will become a somebody who can be mightily used of God. A baby represents uh, time. I was looking um, at a little documentary with um, one of my children the other day about wildebeests. And on the Serengeti, where, the, where there are predators all around, if it's not gonna be a lion, it's a hyena. If it's not a hyena, it's a leopard. If it's not a leopard, it's a crocodile. Predators everywhere. Within 10 minutes after a wildebeest is born, it's able to run for its life. 10 minutes. And for a human baby, How long does it take to become an adult? It takes time, years and years and years of nurture, of training, of experience, of growth. That's what a baby represents. A baby represents need, the need for the people around to pour themselves into that child, for nurture, for community, for a fresh start, Baby represents our future. And the interesting thing is that when God chose to 
to insert himself into the human story the way he did with the birth of Jesus, he came, he sent him as a, as a baby. And one of the ways I think that, um, that, that verse in 1 Corinthians, what it, what it means about the foolish things and the small things, things that are not understood by people who are without God, is that it is only people who are attuned with God who recognize the power of a baby. It's true that um, I think you know, many people who are obsessed with power, obsessed with things, obsessed with the way to manipulate and control others, they don't recognize the value of small people, of the little short ones. They're in their way. And yet it's always been this way for, um, for God, is that he starts with the small things. And there's the, um, there's the passage in Matthew 18 where Jesus um, uses a conversation about a child to launch into a, a, a quite a lengthy sermon. And I'd like to read part of that sermon that he's, he's talking to his disciples here. Um, and and the, begins, the conversation begins with the disciples asking who's greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And he's got some things there that I think we need to remember and need to hear. So if you'd like to turn with me over to Matthew 18, this is what Jesus said. And remember, the context of Jesus' ministry, and the context of him coming as a child, that he's speaking. Jesus called a little child unto him, in verse 2, and set him in the midst of them, and said, Verily I say unto you, except ye be converted, or changed, made new, and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoso shall receive one such little child in my name, receiveth me. Become as a little child, without the aspiration for control, without the aspiration for power, with the understanding that they do need their parents, that, they need their, that we need our Heavenly Father. And also with the innate non-understanding that a child has. A child doesn't understand their significance fully. They don't know what's placed on their shoulders, that they will be those who carry the responsibility of the next generation. That's just there. It's, it's, something, it's something that other people know about them that they don't really know about themselves. And as such, Jesus says in verse 6, Whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. Remember, he's still talking about children here. Wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut them off and cast them from thee, it's better for thee to enter into life halt or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. Take heed that ye despise not one of these little ones. For I say unto you that in heaven 
Their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. And he's still talking about children. For the Son of Man is come to save that which was lost. How think ye, if a man have an hundred sheep, and one of them be gone astray, doth he not leave the ninety and nine, and goeth into the mountains, and seeketh that which is gone astray? And if so be that he find it, verily I say unto you, he rejoiceth more of that sheep than of the ninety and nine which went not astray. Even so it is, not the will of your Father which is in heaven, that one of these little ones should perish. I'll stop reading there. All this warning. Why, why, the, why the big warning? I mean, what does it matter? Who is Stalin's mother? What influences, what seeds were planted in the mind of Hitler? Who did that? Our children, this next generation, are being developed now. Who will they become? What seeds are we planting in their minds? They themselves are the seeds of the future of humanity. But what seeds are we planting in their minds? Jesus says, if you offend them, which means not simply insult them, but if you, if you alter their experience such that you are planting seeds of unbelief and hatred and anger and resentment and selfishness in these young people's lives, you will raise up a generation of hateful, resentful, angry, disappointed, bitter people. And if you do that, it were better for you that you were dead. That's what he's saying. That's the, that's the power of children. That's the power that we have over them. Jesus coming as a child. God didn't choose Mary for nothing or Joseph for nothing. I think he knew that he could trust them with his son. He could trust them to plant seeds of love and of truth and of righteousness, of fearlessness, of caring. And yes, Jesus was not a normal child. He was the son of God. And yet, what we know about Mary tells us that she was also a woman who loved the Lord deeply. We wonder we, need, we know we have the need of God's power. We know it's a time for God's power. But what about the way of God's power? That, that, that intervention that we pray for. God, would you act? Please act. And we, we want something big. We want him to land with a hammer fist. We want him to change everything. And yet I still think that many times... He comes to us as a child. Both literally and figuratively. Literally as in he places in our lives these little people. Whether you're a parent or not, they're around you. And you are influencing them. And they are the seeds either for the salvation 
or the redemption, the moving forward, if you will, of God's kingdom, or they are the seeds for a future of darkness and of hatred, of deprivation. But also, he comes to us as a child figuratively. When we ask for change, we ask for intervention, God plants a seed. He sends a baby. And it's a little thing, something that takes time and nurture and community to grow and mature. Next point I have is the development of God's power. See, Jesus didn't stay a baby. Luke 2, verse 52, it says, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. One of the beautiful things about God is that he is a gardener. God grows things. How many of you have seen the grass grow? How many of you have observed the corn in your gardens grow? You can't see it, and yet it does. Come out after a warm summer rain and a, and a night like that, and you look out and you say, well, it looks like everything grew about an inch. But you never saw it happen. See, that's the way God works, not only in creation, but also in our lives. He plants seeds and then he grows them. Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. I'd like to look at a couple of verses that talk about us as plants. 1 Corinthians 3 was one we uh, looked at this morning, and it grabbed my attention. 1 Corinthians 3, uh, 6, talking here about roles that Apollos and Paul had, but about us as plants. I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth increase. Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one, and every man that every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are, God, for we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry. You're God's garden. You're God's building. And in, in Colossians 2, Verses 6 and 7. It says, As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted. And Paul does mix his metaphors here a little bit. And built up, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. You have the idea of, of believers as rooted as plants. And then there's this beautiful one in Isaiah. This, and this is incidentally... The passage that Jesus announced his ministry with. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me. This is in Isaiah 61 verse 1. Because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all that mourn. To appoint unto them that mourn in Zion. To give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. Jesus himself talked about, uh, in his parables, many times about plants. You've got the parable of the mustard seed. You have the parable of the sower and the seed. 
And it's, it's obvious that God grows us this way, and he grows potential this way. And the small things that, that, we, that God places in your life, do not discount those. The small people that God puts in your life, do not discount those. But one of the things that's different about us and um, just the natural creation that we see out there is that we can choose which seeds take root because none of us, none of us receives only good seed. And it's been said of childhood that, that no child escapes growing up unscathed. Your parents aren't perfect. But just as Jesus' parable talked about the seed, that, the good seed that was sown that didn't take root, we can also choose to not let bad seed take root. Or we can ask God to take that from us. You can choose what seeds will grow. God can also pluck those evil seeds out of our lives. The power of God grows in us as it grew in Jesus, bit by bit, like seed growing, like babies turning into men, like a child growing into, from a promise through potential and into reality, like Jesus growing from that, from that baby into our Savior. The power of God grows in us. God is a gardener. He's not a grenade launcher. And this is what he said. July, uh, sorry, July. John 12, verse 24. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. That's the way God works. And when you pray for God to work in your life, when you say the time is right and the need is here and I need you to work, don't be surprised if instead of sending a thunderbolt, he sends a baby. Send something little, something that you must nurture, something that you must grow, something that might not even be for your time. Maybe it will be for the next people. As grandparents, what influence can you have? How can your prayers be answered? Well, they might be answered, maybe not even by your grandchildren, somebody else's grandchildren, but somebody that you can reach into their life and plant a good seed. Or maybe it's that little thing in my life that God wants to grow, growing from something small into something big. Will you let God grow you? Will you let God be your gardener? And finally, there is the effect of God's power. When Jesus came to earth, he didn't stay a baby. He grew, he developed, and there was an arc to his history, an inevitability about his life that actually led to his sacrifice. But what was the effect of that? Well, we have a promise of it in uh, the message that the angel had for Mary in Luke 1. He said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. Of his kingdom there shall be no end. What is the effect of the power of God? As it was in the person of Jesus, who grew to become our Savior, 
to be the sacrificial lamb. As it was there, it's also true of us, or in us, or around us. The effect of God's power is cataclysmic. It's life-changing. It changes everything. And yet it comes in this way. And yet it comes with a lifespan. And yet it comes with a conclusion. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 23, we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block, unto the Greeks foolishness, but unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen. Yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. God is in it for the long game. And it's the people who are against him that just want a short fix. It's the people who want to fix things with bombs and guns and explosions and fire who are working against him and who will ultimately lose. How many of you have been to Yellowstone recently? Um, a few of you. So there were fires back when I was a very small boy. I don't ever remember seeing Yellowstone pre-fire. Um, I remember hearing about it. remember they talked about the smoke that you could see from, uh, from here for the the fires burning in Yellowstone. And yet, if you go back there now, you can still see the uh, burned, burned uh, trees still standing upright. God is a gardener. But you know what? Sometimes people burn God's garden down. If you go over to Ukraine right now, what you're seeing is a whole generation of young people learning to hate. The same is true of young people um, in Gaza. Their dads are being killed. Or little Israeli boys. And they hear the stories of what those Hamas fighters did to their women. The garden is being burned. A generation is rising of hatred. And I think it's tempting to think when we see these things that the power of God has diminished. Maybe his tactics don't work. What all this about slow growth and green things and gardening and babies? Potential. When as soon as they grow up, they're simply going to be burned down. And the story of humanity is a tragic story in many ways. People who reject God. Of people who are willing to start fires and to burn it all down. But you know what? If you go back to Yellowstone today, 
what you'll see is that the trees are growing again. And they started growing as soon as that fire was gone. We look around us, we look at the hate, we look at the division, we look at the bitterness that people hold toward each other, and we're tempted to take a shortcut and say, well, maybe we just get those people out of our lives. We just make the situation such that we remove them, and we reach for those we reach for those obvious signs of power, of control, of manipulation, of politicizing, of outmaneuvering each other. But God always works the same way, and he will win. And I guess what the Christmas story told me this time is that as, as the grown-ups in the room, may it be that the seeds we plant in our children, maybe the kinds of seeds that Mary planted in hers, and may God work in his people a ground swelling a growing of love, of truth, of compassion. That as Jesus said, abide in me and I in you. That that will be true of, true of us. So that can be planted in them. The work that Christ worked, he worked not only for humanity as a whole, but he also worked for us individually. And that great redemption that is coming, that second coming that will shake not only earth, but also heaven. We're looking for that. But in the meantime, we've got growing to do. We've got children to raise, the literal ones, our children, and the figurative ones, the little things in our life that God wants to plant and grow and turn into mature strength. Uh, one of my coworkers years ago encouraged me by telling me, um, don't worry, Joseph, just remember you ever discouraged that um, the mighty oak was once a little nut like you and um, you know sometimes we're tempted to to either view other people as nuts or maybe see ourselves as, as lacking potential but know this God wants to grow you and he wants to grow those around you and as this story was announced by angels it's also true that I think God rejoices when little things begin to happen in our lives, in our communities, in our families. Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard, that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary. There is no searching of his understanding. He gives power to the faint. 
And to them that have no might, he increaseth strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. It's true we live in dark times. It's true we live in times in which we need the power of God. But we believe that God is at work. It is his time. We believe we know how he works in the small things, in the unnoticed things. We believe the way he works is that he grows those things. And then the effect of those things changes the world. 